Good evening uh, and welcome to the London School of Economics. My name is Meghnath Desai. I used to teach here. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great occasion uh, for, for LSE. Um, LSE uh, may be a first world institution, but it pioneered begging for money from all across the world long, long before anybody had discovered uh, the art. So uh, our great founders, uh, um, Beatrice and Sidney Webb, uh, went around on a begging tour around the world, and lo and behold, they struck gold in India uh, about 100 years ago. And it was then that the association of the name Tata with LSE started. Uh, uh, Sir, uh, Sir Ratan Tata, uh, as he was then, uh, gave LSE some money to start a program on social policy. Uh, and as part of that, one of the first lecturers of social policy at LSE was uh, Clement Attlee, uh, who later on was involved in, in, uh, in the negotiations of Indian, Indian independence and was the prime minister who who passed the 1947 uh, India Act. So we have, but anyway, we have not been slouchers. We have revived our associations with Tata and enriched them. Uh, we have uh, we have had uh, uh, about 10 years ago, again, uh, the now uh, uh, head of Tata, Ratan Tata, uh, were very generously endowed a fellowship by which postdoctoral students come from India, from not just from India, from all of South Asia, one per year who come with a program and they do a, a piece of research uh, at LSE and they benefit from uh, association with uh, LSE colleagues and so on. And we've had that program going for 10 years, very healthy, and we're very, very grateful for that. And now this evening we are going to be announcing another uh, thing, but I'll keep you in suspense and we'll announce a new program uh, late, later on. In the meantime, you have to have a bit of intellectual fodder uh, because that's what LSE is, is, is all about. And our, our theme today is sustaining growth and promoting inclusion in India's economy and society. And I just want to take a couple of minutes uh, of your time before I pass you on to uh, the, the speakers, which is, in a sense, uh, Quite, quite a lot of uh, in the, the tradition in, in, in social sciences where you may believe that there are some invariable iron laws. There aren't any, but you, you can say there are iron laws in which economics leads politics or the single path of industrialization and growth or there are inevitable uh, trends and so on. But in a remarkable way, India has done something which has challenged one or two of the uh, well-accepted trends. One, quite in a revolutionary fashion, India decided to become a democracy upon independence. And not only the democracy, it granted universal adult franchise. Uh, and to have done that for a population which was predominantly illiterate uh, and in a sense had no, uh, had no real experience of universal franchise. At a time when even in the world at large, universal franchise was not that fashionable because France gave women the right to vote only in 1945. So there's a revolutionary stance to have at the birth of the Indian Republic decided to grasp universal adult franchise as a, as a, a model and gone for Western parliamentary democracy. And practically 
everyone uh, sort of said it'll never work. India is not used to democracy. It's not their culture. Need a king, you know, or a dictator or army or something like that. And every decade since then, people have despaired of India's democracy continuing after Nehruhu and after Nehruhu, after Nehruhu and all that. But 60 years, India has sustained a, a, a democracy, a vibrant democracy. And that's one inversion of the usual law because people normally think that you first have development, then you have democracy. You can't have democracy before development. And the consequence, of course, is one of the most remarkable experiments that India is going through right now. That is, if you have democracy, you can't just have the middle class forever benefiting from, from, uh, from the fruits of growth. And so from within, from the bottom, there is a tremendous movement, political movement, for inclusion, for inclusive growth. And inclusive growth doesn't just come from above, it comes from below. And today we have four uh, remarkable speakers who are going to say much better things than I can say about, uh, about, about this topic. Uh, so I shall stand no more in, in, your, in your way. Uh, Mr. Anwar Hassan is, um, is a doer. He, he joined Tata, uh, uh, Tata Limited, uh, he told me, uh, sort of 44 years ago. Uh, I, I just missed getting a Tata job just about then. So I, I kind of... <laughs> I had to go away of the country and uh, missing the Tata job. But uh, and he, he, he's been working Tata in a variety of uh, uh, positions, and he is going to uh, lead off. Then I shall ask Stuart Colbridge, who is professor at LSE, and he is a geographer, and who ha he has written an outstanding book with John Harris on India's development experience. Then Professor Parashuraman, who is the director of the Tata Institute of Social Sciences. He's a distinguished anthropologist. Uh, and then last now our own, uh, Sir Nicholas Stern. Uh, if you can, uh, we've skipped him to last because he's got to get out of the climate change mode, uh, take off his uh, Superman uh, climate change garments and get into his Superman India garments. He is a new IG Patel professor of uh, economics and the head of India Observatory at uh, LSE. And we are very thrilled that Nick has decided to come back to LSE. And, and, uh, and become uh, the IG Patel professor. Anyway, no more uh, uh, of me. Uh, Mr. Anwar Hassan. Thank you, Lord Magnat. Uh, professor Stuart Corbridge, Professor Professor Raman, Professor Sir Nicholas Tan, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, I must apologize for uh, our executive director and Tata Sons, who was originally supposed to be here, Mr. K. Krishna Kumar. Unfortunately, he had to sort of um, get away for some more important uh, uh, work, and I picked the short straw and here I am ahead of you. Uh, Lord Meghnath just said that he was fortunate enough to speak over here, and I can say that I was unfortunate enough to have tried to get admission into the LSC and not <laughs> been successful. And for me to be standing over here and speaking to the students at this particular revered institution, I find it the irony is, is too overbearing. Um, when I, uh, when Ruth asked me to speak at this 
I thought she was not serious, but then I found that matters got very serious and I necessarily had to sort of accept. And uh, naturally there was a lot of inquisitiveness in the office as to where I'm going this evening. So when I said I'm going to speak at the LSE, people start having a funny look on their face. But I think the prize remark that I can make here is when I told Mrs. Hassan that I'm going to speak at the LSE, she says, couldn't you find a better excuse to say you want to play another round of golf? <laughs> so <clears throat> here I am, and uh, hope, hopefully trying to sort of do justice to the subject at hand. What I'll talk about is the Indian economy, where it is today. I'm going to talk about whether this Indian economy is sustainable, and also whether it is an economy that is inclusive. Um, these are all um, hurriedly put together facts and figures, so I hope there may be some inaccuracies, which I hope you'll forgive. But I know for a fact that the substance of the talk is going to come from speakers after me, so if I could pass off a style, I think I'd be, appreci I'd be grateful. Uh, <clears throat> opening to bat on a cloudy day, I think, is, is uh, fraught with difficulty, but nevertheless, let me see as to what I can do to face the, the, the uh, seamers. Everybody has the idea that the Indian economy really started growing after the reform started in 91-92. But actually, the economy, uh, the Indian economy, or the India story really started 25 years ago. 25 years ago, you had a GDP of nearly 1%. In 50 to 1980, it was, well, uh, 3.5. 1980 to 2000, it grew to 6. And 2002 to 2006, it is now rising 8%. So we have a rising GDP. The population rate is slowing down, which started off at the beginning of the century at an annual growth of, of um, uh, 1%. And now from 2001 to 2002, it's down 1.5. Literacy rate is rising. In 1950, we had about 17% of population. And 2000, uh, to 2010, the projection is around about 80% is where we're going to be in terms of our, <coughs> uh, of our literacy rate. In 1980, the middle class, which was around about just 8%, which is 65 million, in 2010, it's projected to be nearly... 32%, which is going to be nearly 368 million. Now, this 368 million, as you know, is practically the, the population of America, and then you can find out that if this is going to be the purchasing power, what it does to the economy. Poverty, in a manner of speaking, is declining. In 1980, we had 46%, and in 2010, it is projected to be around about 16% of the population. 1% of people have been crossing poverty line each year for the last 20 years, which in these years would be equaling to 200 million. 30 to 40% of the GDP growth is productivity, and that's really what is driving the, the increase in the GDP. The per capita, uh, per capita income gains in 1980, which was just $1,178, is now 2000 and in 2002, it's practically $3,051. So we really are sort of moving along. Now, India today is the fourth largest economy, and it will cross Japan 
by 2012 and by 2014 it's going to become the third largest economy the indian model in a manner of speaking is 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 unique um and the drivers of growth in india and sort of a comparison with what we found in uh, east and southeast asia whereas the indian growth really has been based on domestic whereas east and southeast asia is more on the exports the indian uh, growers uh, the drivers is services whereas in southeast asia and east asia is is more manufacturing we are more dependent on our growth on consumption whereas the growth that is been forecasted is mostly on investment so uh, where you have a good consumption rate you really will have a gdp growth that's going to grow then in our case in the indian case the it's 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 high tech capital intensive whereas in other areas it is low tech labor intensive industries now um implications for the india model uh we were a little insulation from the global downturns there is going to be less what volatility because of the of the uh, drivers that we've had and the um fact is that we have perhaps skipped the industrial revolution part of it and uh, and the problem would certainly arise is how do we take people from farms into the into the cities Uh, with the consumption led growth that we've got it is more people friendly and in india it is more 64% whereas in europe it is 58 and 42% in uh, in china now india's success is market led whereas china is a state induced uh, growth the entrepreneur today is the center of the of the indian model now as a result of this we have Uh, we have in amongst our uh, stable uh, companies that have now grown and become world class in terms of reliance jet airways infosys wipro runbexy bharat forge tata motors tcs bharati and i could sort of carry on and name you quite a few of these things in the uh, the uh, the indian private sector is growing rapidly and that is happening only because of the fact that the um government rules and regulations have been more um india friendly and as a result of which the the companies as are growing so today we have at least 100 indian companies that have a market cap of nearly 1 billion dollars and above so there's no doubt that the indian economy and the growth rate that we have just now has been as a result of these factors that have come in but the important thing now is that uh, is this sustainable i think that it is sustainable because india's saving and investment rate have reached very healthy proportions india's saving as a percentage of the gdp is uh, and and investment rate as a percentage of the gdp now at 33 and 35% respectively and in in an investment rate of 35 and an ico incremental capital output ratio of around 4% the gdr comes to around about 9% the approach paper for the 11th plan mentioned gdp growth at 8.5 and there is no reason to think that the sustained growth rate will be less than that the experience of economies which went into a sustainable 10 year plus high growth phase has shown that one of the critical preconditions for that to happen is for the investment rate to cross 30% 
India did in 05-06 and there is no reason to think why it will get lower. The demographic divide also I think is something that's terrifically in favor of India. India is the only major economy expected to get younger in the growing in the few decades whereas China is already aging. Some 50% of India's population is under 25 and India's working population is expected to swell <clears throat> from the current 40, 400 million plus to over 630 million in the next two decades, making it the largest working population in the world. Historically, um, again, nations which have gone through this phase have seen their savings and interest rates swell. India's GDP growth is driven almost equally by consumption and investment, unlike China, which is still more dependent on the investment. A decade ago, India's GDP growth was largely driven by consumption, but for the last four years <coughs> have been economic D drivers. FDI has picked up sharply in the last two years, and from being 5 billion, FDI went up to 8 billion in 05, 06. And, uh, for, and the government has announced the target of 30 billion for 07, 08. Services and industry, and within industry, manufacturing are powering India's GDP growth with uh, growth rates around well over 10%. India's comparative advantage in services 55 and GDP is acknowledged. And manufacturing, which is a new entrant, is now 12.5%. And I don't think that we've really taken into account what agriculture can do because that's an area where there, I think there is fantastic potential for us to grow. So if you've got the economy firing on all cylinders, which is services, manufacturing, and agriculture, I think it would be, uh, it would be real conservatively put that we would be in a position to sustain the 8, 8 to 10% growth. Comes the question about is it inclusive? I mean, is everybody in society benefiting for it, or is it, is it that only the rich are getting richer and the poor are not, which uh, I think was uh, a very important point, certainly at the last elections, and uh, whether the trickle-down effect, which most economics has predicted, that may not have been fast enough, as a result of which the GDP and all the top-line figures are really good, but whether, the, whether that has affected the common man, I think, is an important thing. And after having said what I did in the initial stages, now I think I've got to sort of be a little more realistic in the sense that I think that the picture is mixed. It's not really something for me to say that everybody is getting involved. Certainly there have been benefits that have been passed on. And, you know, when you look at uh, somebody who's tilling the field, maybe not with uh, the latest tractor, but even in his traditional thing, if he's got a mobile phone, thing, I think that's in a manner of speaking um, the, uh, the inclusiveness that I think is being brought about. Right. Now, one of the aspects which I think uh, would be worthwhile looking at uh, is the growth jobless. I mean, is the question is asked as to two reasons. Jobs in, industry, in, in the organized sector have, in fact, come down. As a matter of fact, if you want to be more productive, if you want your productivity to increase, you will probably get a lot of um, latest equipment which really you know, does not depend too much on the manpower. So manufacturing jobs have come down. Unlike China, there has been no proliferation of low-skill, low-paid jobs in manufacturing. On the other hand, in a recent OECD study brought out, India tops in job generation amongst BRIC countries of over 11 million a year. 
Most of the job growth is in the services sector, which is largely an unorganized sector. Is everybody gaining from the growth? 60% of the workforce which lives in the rural areas is clearly not gaining as much as workforce in the urban and semi-urban areas with agriculture exhibiting a negative 2% in annual growth against 9 to 10% in industry and services. On the other hand, increasingly, income in rural areas coming from non-farm activities like dairying, which is growing well. Is the disparity in increasing? Perhaps yes, <coughs> but between both the urban, rural, and between the better-off states, mainly in the west and north, the poor areas, mainly east of Kanpur, are perhaps suffering. However, the government is alive to this issue, and unlike previous governments, I think everybody's learned a lesson as to what one needs to sort of do in terms of getting everybody to be inclusive. And I think the governance from the government, I think, has been focused toward that through massive subventions like the National Rural Guarantee Scheme, the Bharat Nirman Program, and the Midday Meal Schemes the National Rural Health Mission and similar schemes of which we have an outlay of exceeding 200,000 crores. Of course, their effectiveness is impaired by perhaps the poor quality of governments and particularly uh, in the delivery of public goods like health, education and sanitation. Uh, that's a quick and a brief and a fast-forward run-through of what I had to say today and I hope um, by the speakers following me, I'm sure we'll enlighten you with more facts and figures and things in more detail. And thank you, Lord. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, as I said, Stuart Corbridge uh, has been studying India for quite some time. Stuart. Thank you. Uh, it occurs to me that I was perhaps the, the last one on the stage actually to go to India. I first went in December 1979, and I spent uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day of 1979 at the guest house of Tisco, yeah. at Noah Mundi, on the yeah. border between Bihar and Orissa. And I was grateful to the hospitality of that corporation then. Jamshedpur, in, in fact, is one of my favourite cities uh, in India, and I think that the part that was given to the citizens of Jamshedpur <coughs> by Tartar in 1958, where you can get a terrific view over the cricket ground in one direction, and less romantically, the steelworks in the other direction, is an icon of the sort of corporate benevolence that Tata has long been known for. And notwithstanding recent events in Singapore, in West Bengal, it does seem to me that uh, it's a pleasure, obviously, to be here tonight and to receive hospitality for a second time, 28 years later, from the Tata Foundation. I want to group my remarks into three sections. Obviously, Sorry, can you be, can you be heard at the back then? All right? Okay, stand a bit close to the mic. I, I'll group my remarks into three sections and try not to cover too much of the ground that's already been covered. I think in respect of economic growth, we can surely agree that growth is, generally speaking, good or should be good for poor people. And as the previous speaker has said, there is a lot to be proud of in respect of India's recent achievements. I was particularly gratified that the previous speaker said, in fact, that the increase in the rate of growth in India's economy dates not from 1991, uh, but from the late 1970s, in fact, from about the time that I first went to the country, although there's no causal connection there. <laughs> 
This is an economy that grew at about 4% per annum through the 1980s and 1990s in terms of per capita incomes. It's clearly speeded up since. There's been remarkable growth, particularly in the services sector, a much poorer performance, as the previous speaker said, in respect of agriculture. There's no doubt, too, I would endorse the previous speaker here, that there's a huge amount still to come. Uh, Our economists point out that India is well within its total factor productivity frontier, which I think means that there's an awful lot to do in respect of health and education. People's opportunities to access markets can still be improved hugely, and I'll come back to that. There is a demographic bulge coming through which is going to be very favourable to India. So I think we can assume, along with people like Danny Roderick at Harvard and Arvind Subramaniam, that India can very easily grow at rates of 5 to 6% per annum in terms of per capita incomes up to, say, easily 2025. And that means that the average, the median income of an Indian in 2025 would be eight times greater than in 2000. And that's a very remarkable achievement. It's clear, too, that people have been pulled out of poverty very rapidly. As the previous speaker said, poverty in terms of absolute income poverty, and it's a very cruel, I think, definition of poverty in India, has halved since the late 1970s. And notwithstanding the fact that inequality is rising in India, this is not a country that's yet as unequal as Brazil or China. So that, I think, is is the good news. Um, But it's nothing like as good as it should be, I think. And I do think that the high rates of economic growth that India has achieved are not that exceptional. Costa Rica grew at very similar rates in the 1950s and 1960s. China has grown, of course, much more rapidly and on a much more even basis. India's development has been led economically very much by the services sector. And it does seem to me sometimes that if we look at Mumbai and Delhi, shining India, and turn our attention away from the east of the country, that we almost provide an alibi for the real lack of social inclusion in India. So if you'll forgive me, uh, I'll quote a few statistics at you to make the second of my remarks. There are 700 million people today in India living on less than $2 a day. Average living standards in the east of the country, in rural areas of Bihar, as the World Bank has pointed out recently, are roughly on a par with sub-Saharan Africa. We've got urban areas of India on a par with middle-class areas of Latin America. Extreme regional variation. Vaccination rates since 1991 for polio and measles have gone down. 47% of children in India today are suffering from forms of malnutrition. And if we look at gender particularly, this is still a country where we have about 1,070 men for 1,000 females. And this is extreme social exclusion. South Asia and China, of course, providing the heartland of the 100 million missing women that Amartya Sen has so often reminded us of. I'll give you one last statistic in this respect. A girl born in India in the mid-1990s was 40% more likely than a boy born at the same time to die between the ages of one and five, child mortality. So I think it's right that we celebrate India's achievements, but I do think that we need to be aware of the huge problems
problems of social inclusion. And I've not yet touched, nor do I really intend to, upon the particular problems that some minorities, not just Dalits and Adivasis, but some Muslims also, are facing in India today. Now, the key figure for me is one that's been provided by an LSE colleague, Tim Besley, working with Robin Burgess and others, and that is the figure 0.65. Globally, amongst low-income countries, a 1% rise in GDP will translate into a reduction in poverty of minus 0.73. In India, it's 0.65. In other words, 1% growth in India is pulling fewer people out of poverty than in the mass of low-income countries. In China, in East Asia, in Kerala, in West Bengal, in India, it's above unity. It's above one. In Bihar, where I've worked, it's it's minus 0.3. Minus 0.3. There are major problems then in terms of economic growth translating into people being pulled out of poverty. Yes, millions of people are being pulled out of poverty every year in India, but they're not being pulled out of poverty at anything like the rate that they should be pulled out of poverty. So I want to move to my third and final set of remarks and briefly ask why and to remind ourselves, I think, of some fairly obvious answers. Firstly, there are some technical failures the World Bank has noted in a recent report on India in respect of government. I think it is the case that the government of India has been improving rapidly recently at all spatial scales. There's a strong right to information movement. There's the democracy that Meghnad spoke about. There are protections for women and for minorities. The reservation system. But still I think government is more concerned with what it spends, with the inputs to the system, than with measuring the effectiveness of the outputs in the system. It's more concerned with building roads than maintaining roads. And the infrastructural position in India, I think, is alarming. The World Bank estimates that India would have to spend about 2 to 3% extra of its GDP over the next 10 years, simply to sustain rates of growth of 5 to 6% per annum. And this is a country with a very significant fiscal deficit. Although I'll leave it to Nick later to explain to me as a non-economist why India has had a persistently large fiscal deficit and still has managed to grow really quite effectively. Some extraordinary World Bank experiments also to academics Das and Hammer, if you'll forgive me, near dinner time, providing stool samples to doctors in Delhi and asking them to diagnose very simple diseases, in this case diarrhea. Less than 50% of doctors could do so. Now, I don't know what the figure would be in the UK, but it points to the problems of a sort of proto-professionalisation that nevertheless reveals certain weaknesses in the capacities and capabilities of the professional sector and of government that we need to take on board, I think, when we talk about India's infrastructural problems. Secondly, more importantly, what Barbara Harris-White calls the social structures of accumulation. Why is the figure so low in Bihar, so low in the east of the country, minus 0.3? It surely has to do with the fact that people's access historically to assets, now to the market, 
are constrained by these enduring structures which often overlap of caste and class, of ethnicity and of gender. When people don't have an education, they suffer from poor health. There are no roads. The state has effectively collapsed, which is the case in Bihar, which is probably the most privatized state in the republic, but not for classically Thatcherite reasons. It's very difficult to see how growth in other parts of the country, except perhaps through migration, inducements to move west, it's difficult to see how Bihar is going to pull itself quickly out of the situation into which it's fallen. And not just Bihar. I don't focus on Bihar for easy or apocryphal reasons. One finds similar things across Chhattisgarh, Jharkhand, Assam, Orissa, Madhya Pradesh, many parts of the country. Lastly, it seems to me that what's really important here is politics. And I want to make two points in this respect. There are, I think, some extraordinary paradoxes about economic growth and social inclusion in India if we think about politics. The first is that we have had 60 years of democracy in India, real democracy. It's often been reported that poor rural women are more likely to vote than rich urban males. There are systems of affirmative action. As I mentioned before, there's a vibrant right to information movement vibrant civil society. But there's little evidence, I think, that this is translated into a political class that is more willing than elsewhere to solve collective action problems or to act for the general or greater good. What I think we've seen over the past 10 or 20 years is the increased criminalization of politics, the increasing expense of politics, which is partly related to that, and a series of perverse incentive systems that discourage politicians all too often from acting in the public good. All too often, too many politicians are in bed with local mafias, land speculators, and we have a real clash of interests going on in many parts of the country that is somehow overlooked in the spotlight that perhaps rightly is focused on India's economic achievements. Related to that, finally... Mamahan Singh, when he came to power in 2004, said that he was faced with two particular threats. Terrorism on the one hand and the Naxalite movement on the other. Now, I don't think that he came to power because of a rural backlash against urban India. He came to power because the Congress Party made better alliances in 2004 than the BJP. But the crisis in agriculture and the crisis in the east of the country is a serious one. And the government recognises at the moment that in one-sixth of all of India's districts there is an ongoing and very well organised now Maoist movement. So if I go back to where I started, to Noah Mundi, and just travel 60 kilometres north to a village that I lived in in 1993, there was no sign of Naxalite activity then. Now this is a hotbed of the Naxal movement. It's a much more unified movement than it previously was. <coughs> it's mirroring itself, excuse me, on what's been happening in Nepal. There is now a Communist Party of India, Maoist. And I think whilst the agenda that it's pushing is not one that I would want to support at all, it is nevertheless symptomatic of the problems of social inclusion that India still faces. Thank you.
Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that, Stuart. Uh, Professor Parshuraman uh, is our next speaker. Professor Lord Magna Desai, Professor Sir Nicholas Thurn, Professor Cordbridge, Mr. Hassan, distinguished colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, it's my privilege uh, to be here to talk to you this evening. As part of a very, very important um, you know, collaborative arrangement emerging between the Tata Institute of Social Sciences and the London School of Economics. Uh, we have heard um, from colleagues, two of them before me, um, talk about the India's progress in the last 10, 15 years. And of course, uh, Professor Cordbridge uh, clearly uh, specified where we are headed. It's almost a challenge um, you know, to the democratic and plural future depends how widely and how deeply we can entrench inclusiveness in our governance, institutions and indeed society in general. Even while um, India is in the threshold of um, supremacy in the area of um, information technology, knowledge generation, and a whole lot of um, related areas, a large part of India is in, is in despair. I think um, what's the nature and extent of it, I think you heard from the earlier speaker, and I would touch upon it um, uh, in, the, in, the, in the coming times. India's nuclear prowess uh, cannot make us uh, blind to the fact that we are threatened by um, even more powerful bombs that are deprivation and unfreedom. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come to uh, tell you how uh, it expresses in the, in the country's context. As Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, a distinguished alumnus of LSE, warned us several decades ago, glaring economic, economic inequalities cannot, can undermine not just our political equality, but tear asunder the very fabric of our society. Caste and gender discrimination, religious intolerance, and moral policing, you know, and mindless violence threaten to accentuate the social divisions and exclusions. The pervasiveness of violence and the use of force have in many cases translated into increasing militarization of social and international relations. Your majority, your major characteristics of state and in many instances, societal response to conflict and violence has been to criminalize it. As a result, what are essentially sociopolitical conflicts are being sought to be resolved um, using force rather than appropriate social and political mechanisms. It's vital to understand in what ways um, this has impacted the ju justice system itself, whose autonomy and professional role is increasingly seen as being overrun by political expediency. In the context of market-led economic globalization, development and its impact on society and economy, people's health, socio-cultural institutions, 
and, and the environment continue uh, to be a major arena of debate and conflict between scholars, policymakers, and activists. It is important to critically assess the apparent paradigm shift involved in post-development ideas, such as human security. The imperatives of a southern response to global warming and the political implications thereof most definitely articulated in the context of Britain and the global north by Professor Stern uh, presents another arena of significant challenge to sustainable development and growth. While the causes of climate turbulence are to be found mainly in the north, yet their destructive effects will mainly hit the south. For the global south, climate change is likely to become a not-so-invisible hand behind agricultural decline, social disruption, and migration. In the development as growth ideology, growth is taken um, as a natural imperative. All efforts, to, all efforts are focused on reforming the means of growth, that is technologies, forms of organization, incentive structures, etc. While the ends of growth, that is the, those levels of comfort, choice, and consumption reached by the most advanced countries are taken for granted. In such a scheme of things, awareness of nature's carrying capacity was bound to be the casualty. Also stemming from this is the displacement of people from lands, forests, and livelihoods to provide for economic expansion is unleashing conflicts in several parts of the country. Professor Cordridge talked about um, uh, the, the levels of uh, the Maoist penetration in the country. I think when Manmohan Singh came to power, uh, we had about 168 districts where the district administration had power to, to 40 to 50 percentage of the area. Today, we have about 268 districts where the government's capacity to be able to administer is very limited. You know, institutions like us get asked by both the government and the civil society groups to look at the government would ask the Tata Institute of Social Science to find out how to deal with the Naxalite problem. The social groups keep asking us, can you do study on the overall displacement of people you know, because of what is happening so that something can be done about the people's conditions, actually. So there is, there is that vast areas of India that are not within the capacity of the government to administer. Also, the challenge posed by the conflict over right to access natural resources, in particular land, water, forest, often at the root of social and political conflicts across India, and rural and urban India. So the challenge of inclusion in India is most pronounced in the spheres of education and healthcare. You know, again, you had the statistics about the changing condition of healthcare um, in, 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 in India. You know, if you look at Bombay itself, if you travel um, about 50 to 60 kilometers away from Mumbai city, you would find the Thana district, um, you know, the levels of infant mortality wouldn't be very different from obtainable in, the, in, in, in states like Bihar. Um, so um, the situation is far more critical in education and healthcare, healthcare areas as such. 
India's famed knowledge economy is set to grapple effectively with the challenges of denial of access to quality education and inequality of opportunities. Similarly, the critical question of how an expanding healthcare market in the country can also create affordable and accessible services to the poor and marginalized sections of the population is still blowing very much in the wind. Enhancing accountability, the quality of governance and strengthening and deepening democratization has been the primary thrust of most civil society initiatives. However, the social deficit in Indian democracy, the democratic deficit in public policy making, and the accountability deficit in government governance continues to be the areas that merit close, close scrutiny. This is especially so um, given the repeated failure of the state to democratize public policy making and to consistently and effectively implement proper elements of public policy. You know, that is again a um, again, a very important factor. At this particular point in time, industries, the state can put its, um, its police power to displace people from the lands and livelihoods, which is happening in, in, a, in a very effective way. But the same state wouldn't put its force behind to implement the public policy um, it, 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 it develops and, and wants to uh, implement, at least, at least says it will implement it. No single phenomenon epitomizes these varied challenges like the acute agrarian distress sweeping across the country. There is adequate evidence now that this distress is a mass distress affecting all sections of the society in the affected regions. However, it has found place um, in studies and media reports um, due to occurrence of a large number of suicide of farmers. You know, you have heard about it. We have the, the government of uh, the High Court of um, Mumbai asked us to do the first of the studies on farmer suicide, and which you can look at uh, from our website. The agrarian distress has been has been due to many reasons and has taken many forms. Farmer suicides are essentially cases, cases of entitlement failures. Changes in macro policies in agriculture have had a direct impact on the livelihoods of cultivators. It's no surprise that the first of the suicides occurred in 1997 when import duties on cotton were significantly lowered, resulting in a sharp fall in cotton prices. In the 1990s and, of, 1990s and after, the state has significantly retreated from direct intervention in the countryside. The steady erosion of the system of state procurement of cotton and other agricultural products is a case in point. The breakdown of the institutional support structures in rural areas has also taken other forms, most notably the substantial weakening of the extension machinery of the government, substantial weakening of the public credit provision system in rural areas, and noticeable decrease in real investment in irrigation and sustainable harnessing of water resources. Coupled with this is the declining opportunities in non-farm employment in distress that has further aggravated the crisis. I can go on for the rest of this evening, actually. But, you know, it is our understanding that it would be, it would be far more difficult to sustain the growth, you know, as it is, as it is happening today, 9 percentage, 10 percentage growth rate. And the, and the 11th plan 
um, document um, you know, wants to have a 11% growth rate or 10% growth rate, and much of it had to come from the manufacturing and mining and other um, sectors as such. I think there is, there is a critical rethink uh, within the current um, government institutions as to how it can reverse the process, um, how it can uh, provide a, you know, work towards a growth um, that is more inclusive. But what happens is that the overall global processes and the institutions that work with the government aren't necessarily um, appropriate agencies to advise the government in a way it is advising. I think so. It would be very interesting to see, um, you know, how um, this government would uh, would deal with it because it has another two years to go. Um, you know, it would be a repeat of what we had in in, in 2003. Thank you. Now, all your doubts will be settled by next time. <laughs> I, have, I have some slides, and everybody who's ever given a talk in slides to walks up to the platform thinking in horror that it's not going to work, but I'm going to find out. Ah. Now, um, I've been back at the school for two weeks. I'm very happy to have come home. Um, my mother was at the LSE, I should hasten to add, in the 1940s. I'm particularly happy to have come home as the IG Patel Professor of Economics and Government. IG um, hired me. He was a man I looked up to. Uh, he was in many ways uh, an uncle uh, to me and to many of us uh, here. So it's a great privilege for me to be back um, and in a chair bearing his name. Uh, he would have been very uh, much directly concerned with the title that we have today. He was a great uh, economist who believed profoundly in the story of growth and uh, was all his life thinking about Indian growth, but he was also a fine human being who was devoted to social justice and his story uh, would have been along these lines. And I think he would have joined with some of us as thinking, well, that's a good, good title, but it's slightly wrong. I think IG might have replied to this one as sustaining growth by promoting inclusion in India's economy and society. And uh, I think that their previous contributions were actually taking us in this direction. And I agree with what's been said. I want to try to offer a very macro interpretation of um, uh, this story. Um, but before I do that, let me um, welcome very much our colleagues and friends from um, Tata and from TIS uh, with us tonight. Our collaboration um, between LSE and Tata and Tata-supported um, institutions, as Meghna said, is a very old one, and it's a great pleasure for us uh, to be together with you. So thank you very much for coming to be with us uh, today. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, Ruth Katimori who put uh, this program together um, and uh, without her you wouldn't be here at least not here tonight That's the, uh. now um, I'm going to as I said see all this from a very macro perspective, a perspective of very simple growth theory, I suppose that falls to me as uh, with Megnard the only sort of directly uh, a professorial economist on, on the platform 
Um, of course, there are many other ways of looking at it other than economics, but I'm, as we heard very clearly tonight, but I'm going to do it from a macro uh, perspective with some, some very simple sort of uh, first-year uh, growth theory. Now, it, that's some way strange for me because uh, most of my life working in India, I've seen it from an ultra-micro perspective, working in one of the, uh, just one of the half a million or more villages there are in India, a village called Palanpur in the eastern side of um, West UP. But I do think that what I'm going to say from the macro perspective rings true to me from it, the direct observation of Palanpur for now uh, nearly 33 uh, years. So um, let me first look at the composition of growth. We've heard very clearly from the previous speakers about the pattern of growth and how that picked up. But let's look now at the composition of growth. Um, what we've got here is, um, if you look at the overall growth, that's the uh, orangey-red story. And you can see what you have is a growth rate for services. This is just over the last 10 years or so. You've got a growth rate for services which is consistently above, that's the sort of greenish line at the top, which is consistently above the um, average. And you've got a growth rate for agriculture which is consistently below and actually the growth rate for industry is not very far away from the overall growth rate. So that's the story of India, as already been emphasised, one of a rapidly growing service sector and uh, a much less rapidly growing agricultural sector, with all the problems we've heard about rural deprivation. Of course, rural incomes are not the same as agricultural incomes, but they're very strongly influenced by agricultural incomes. And you, of course, have got uh, volatility there in agriculture, so it's not only tough... Uh, having lower incomes than other people is that though, when you do have lower incomes than other people, if they're linked with agriculture, they're often more volatile than uh, other people. So this composition of growth in India is a very important part of the story. In this sense, India is not that atypical. I mean, the story of growth going back in uh, the rich countries now of Europe, say, going back to 200 years, would have been a story of services growing much faster than agriculture, with industry being uh, somewhere in the middle. But India is no different from that, but on top of it, of course, volatility in rural areas combined with uh, uh, very deep poverty makes life that much more difficult. So that pattern over time has resulted now, if we go back um, 30 years or so, 30 years or so, the share of agriculture in GDP in India was close to 50%, a bit below, and now it's more like 20%. A radical change in the last 30 years or so. This long-term phenomenon has speeded up in this last 30 years or so, and you've now got agriculture as a, a contributor to growth being much smaller than it would have been, much smaller than it would have been when I first went to India in 1974, when it was then still a very big part of the economy and a key driver of the, uh, the growth uh, process. The green line there is the services going on marching upwards, um, well below 40% um, 30 or so years ago, and now well above 50%. So that's a story of a changing structure of India's economy, but it's useful to keep that in mind when you're thinking about India's prospects. How, if you're looking at aggregate growth, will India sustain this uh, rapid rate of growth of services and, um, and industry, and how will it stop agriculture falling, or on rural incomes, I should say, falling still further behind? Now, here's your little bit of uh, growth theory. This is the incremental um, capital output ratio, and that says how much do you have to increase your investment rate, your investment share in national income, to get an extra 1% of growth. So your incremental capital output ratio is 5. If you have to bump up 
the share of savings by 5% to get a 1% extra growth rate. How much do you get for your savings in a very vulgar uh, sense? It's the incremental capital output ratio introduced by Harrod and Domar and the uh, originators, as it were, of growth theory around the time of the Second World War. And I think it's still a useful way. Um, You have to dig behind it and ask what's going on, of course, but it's still a useful way to think about growth. And you can see what happened in India is that the the incremental capital output ratio was very high in the 70s, and it came down in the period um, of the 80s and 90s. Of course, it shoots up in periods where you have very uh, bad growth, and that's uh, just the arithmetic of the story. But what you've had is an efficiency of capital in that sense in India, which underwent a change in the 80s and has kept, um, it's kept there. It's got much more efficient than uh, the story in China. In China, you have to uh, bump up your uh, investment to output ratio by about 5% to get a 1% growth. In India, it's 3.5-4%. So, India may not look all that efficient all the time to those of us who spend a lot of time there, but in terms of the use of capital, in this sense, it's not that bad. Now, if we look behind it, we also see that it could get much better. And this little hint of the incremental capital output ratio coming down at the end, will that be sustained? If it can be, and savings rates can be kept up, then the story of um, 8% growth is plausible. I mean, just do the arithmetic. If you have 3.5-4% incremental capital output ratio and a savings rate of 30%, then you will get around an 8% or so growth rate. So it is logically possible, looking at these very simple aggregate numbers, provided two things, that the incremental capital output ratio is kept down or pushed down still further, still greater efficiency in the use of investment, and the savings rate stays up. Now, let's look behind, because this is very aggregate sort of uh, arithmetic. Let's look behind that at the investment climate in India. Now, this is a very simple perspective on the investment climate through the lens of electricity. Now, India is there um, in uh, 2002 and 2006 in these numbers. And if you look at the delay in gaining an electrical connection, it was nearly 80 days 78 here, there's nearly 80 days in 2002, and that's down to 26 days in um, 2006. So in that very crude sense, infrastructure in India is getting better. But also in that very crude sense, infrastructure in India is still pretty bad, and it's got a very long way uh, to go. You can still see very high percentage of outputs lost through electrical outages in India, much higher than in countries like uh, Brazil, China and uh, Indonesia. So uh, there are many more people in India or many more firms in India own a generator than uh, uh, in other countries. Why? Because electricity supply is so unreliable. So this is a story of a big infrastructure challenge, uh, but some progress, and it's very important that that progress is sustained. So is it possible to bring down India's uh, uh, incremental capital output ratio? Is it possible to make uh, the use of investment still more efficient? I think the basic answer to that question is, yes, it is. But it will need pushing ahead, both with reforms and investment. Will that happen? Well, we have to see. I'm always, uh, I'm very fond of quoting um, what Montek, my very old student friend Montek Singh Alawalia uh, used to say, he said, yes, he said, I think it, it will get better because there's a very strong consensus in India for weak reforms. And um, <laughs> so it may happen, 
but it may not. Um, but I think there's reasonable grounds for hoping it will. So that's a story of growth which is, uh, in some sense, in this very aggregate sense, rather optimistic. But if we start digging inside it and start looking at the questions of social uh, of uh, social inclusion, we start to raise the kind of worrying questions that were raised uh, earlier. So let me just look at that in terms of three dimensions. Um, and let's look at uh, UP as a state I know very well, uh, Maharashtra a state I know less well, and these of course are not small uh, entities, 170 million in UP, 100 million in Maharashtra, uh, very roughly. We're talking about very big countries uh, here if they, if they were countries. Um, and what we've just plotted here over the last 20 years or so is the way in which Maharashtra has been leaving UP still further behind. For a very, very long time, Maharashtra has been richer than UP, but that difference is going up. In the last 20-odd uh, uh, years, Maharashtra was around 1.9 uh, originally, or 20-some years ago, around 1.9 times the per capita uh, domestic product of UP, it's now um, something like 2.6, 2.7. That's actually a pretty big divergence between very big entities. So the first part of the story, the first part of the worry is the regional disparities and the growing regional disparities. Now that's going to have a drag, a place a big drag on growth. One of the big differences between China and India is that in the very poor areas of China, there are hardly any people. I mean, two or three million in, 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 in Tibet. Now, that still Tibet's a very important place, but in the aggregate total of things, it's quite small. But in India, the lagging poor regions are not small, and they are eventually, and indeed now, going to uh, place uh, a real drag on growth unless that starts to change. So it's not just reform and improving the investment climate. It's particularly reform and improving the investment climate in places like uh, UP and uh, Bihar. We know it's possible because other parts of India have done it, but it's still a big challenge, still very strong vested interests. One of the most corrupt sectors in the Indian economy is the power sector because if you've got, that, if you've got your hand on somebody's switch, you let them know, and indeed you let them know by flicking the switch, knock, knock, knock on the door a little while later says, well, you seem to have a power problem here. Is there anything I can do about it? And that kind of difficulty in reform and vested interest in reform is part of this whole story of bringing down the um, uh, incremental capital output ratio in that very crude sense, improving the efficiency of investment. So that's one very, very sort of aggregate picture of the regional challenge. Second, gender. Now, Superficially, many of us think or would have thought that the participation of women in the labour force in India has been going up pretty sharply. The figures don't seem to suggest that. Now, it may be the figures are wrong, but they may not be. And uh, that's something which I think is, a, is an important research area to test out just how strong these figures are. But the pod bottom two graphs here are the um, uh, female participation in the labour force and the top two graphs are the male. Not much difference urban and rural for the men, big difference uh, rural and urban for the women, much bigger participation in rural, um, in rural societies of women in the labour force, but still way, way below other parts of uh, Asia. Now that's about, just like uh, inefficiencies in the electrical industry, and this is a much deeper sense, it's a very uh, bad thing. But at the same time, it makes you or can give you grounds for optimism because if that participation rate was increased, 
there could be a very big uh, uh, growth in the Indian economy. Those of you who still read um, um, uh, the good Lord Meknad Desai's Marxian economics will recognize that there's a very big reserve army here. And uh, that, I think, is not... So what we've got is, again, a story not only about social justice and rights of women, but also about promoting the story of growth. As I say, all this at a very aggregate level, but I'm trying to relate the big growth story to some of the things and just unpack it just a little bit into some of these uh, dimensions. Finally, on urbanisation. India is still a very rural society, although that's changing very rapidly. It took 70 years, these are census figures here, it took 70 years for the percentage of urbanisation to go from 10 to 20. It took 30 years for the percentage of urbanisation to go from 20 to 30. It'll probably take 10 years or so, and we're probably almost there for uh, the uh, percentage of urbanisation to go 30 to 40. But it is still a rural society, and that means that the fluctuations in agriculture, which still hit rural incomes very hard, the low rate of growth in agriculture, which is still uh, a key feature of the Indian economy, is going to be a big part of the story. And um, whilst I share you know, Stuart Corbridge's nuanced uh, understanding of the way in which uh, uh, the BJP got voted out in 2004, I think this fact of still a very big population in rural areas and the very slow growth of agriculture was a part, far from the only part, but a part of that story. So I think that the whole story of social inclusion will be a very important part of sustaining this, um, in Montek's words, um, a strong consensus for weak reform. And if that disappears then I think it will be very difficult to sustain the uh, growth rate. But for the reasons I described, I think it can happen. My own judgment is that it's likely to happen, but only if we would follow the dictum that the Hope IG and Think IG would have offered that this is, uh, has to be about um, sustaining growth by promoting social inclusion. Thank you very much. Now, before I throw open the thing to questions, and we may not have that much time, so carefully think of your questions, reduce them in size by 80%, and then I will call you. In the meantime, I want to call Mr. Bhatliwala from uh, the Tata Industries to announce the scheme we have got now for joint collaboration and research between LSE and Tata Institute of Social Sciences. I'm not going to do any of this work. People who are going to do the work are, are around here, and they have chosen four themes to concentrate on so that there will be collaborative work between uh, the two institutions. So perhaps Mr. Bartlewala can come and tell us a little bit about that, and perhaps then Mr. Prasabharshiraman and Nick Stern can add to that. Please, Mr. Bartlewala. Lord Medna Desai, dignitaries on the dais, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I am not being asked to speak on this subject, so the experts have already spoken, and uh, uh, <laughs> Professor <coughs> Stern has given a very lucid and uh, analytical analysis of discerning growth and promoting inclusion in Indian economy. But uh, I have been asked to speak on 
what the Tata Trust, who are one of the funding agencies of this whole collaboration between TISS <coughs> and the LSE, is all about. Uh, of course, you must have read on the website and you must have <coughs> also read, but I'm uh, going to speak to you about the Tata Trust per se, because uh, I do not know how many people really know about Tata Trust and their philanthropic activities, but it would be not fair on my part to run through the history of Tata Trust, which has been for 75 years now, uh, uh, in this next 10 minutes. But I'll give you a glimpse of what Tata Trust uh, have been doing and what are the guiding principles of the Trust in the <coughs> uh, during all these years. Well, uh, before I start, it gives me great pleasure to be with you today and to have the honor to speak before the distinguished uh, <coughs> professors on the dais on the subject of social security, which is so close to our hearts. The Tata Trust are, year by con are today considered the largest funding agencies, agency in the private sector in India. This trust, established by Jamsuji Tata, the founder of the Tata Group of Companies, and his two sons, Sir Narabji Tata and Sir Ratan Tata, and later followed by Mr. J.R.D. Tata, from their personal wealth, have been the fountainhead of establishing many institutions of pioneering nature, much ahead of their time in the field of studies of social sciences, the TISS, on fundamental sciences, the treatment and research of cancer, integrated rural development restorations of the country's rich heritage of performing arts, and the an Institute of Advancement of Knowledge and the establishment of an Institute of Advanced Studies, research in tropical diseases, and more recently, a cancer hospital in Calcutta, which will soon be a fountainhead to cater to the needs of the Eastern India as such. As I said in the beginning of this, uh, that what guides Tata Trust in doing all this social work. And the best way to mention this is our Professor R.D. Joxi, who was our ex-managing trustee. He has summed up this in a very uh, lucid manner. And he said, and I quote, what distinguishes a trust is not its ability to give or the extent or range of its giving, but the character of its giving. It is important for a trust to maintain its pioneering character. And this can only be done adequately where from time to time a trust initiates and fosters new institutions and new types of services to the society. For a great trust, a large project carefully designed and executed must always be a major objective. This is what you see in today's collaboration also. This was said, I'm sure, about uh, 50 years ago, but this is what is the guiding principle of the Tata Trust even today. The Trust also support, supports hundreds of students through educational and travel grants for higher education within the country and abroad. Our, our founder, Jamsheji Tata, had uh, laid great emphasis 
on the on the on the education and as early as 1800 he out of his own funds used to send indian students for higher education abroad and i quote what he said what advances a nation or a community is not so much to prop up its weakest and the most helpless members but to lift up the best and the most gifted so that to make them of the greatest service to the country the philosophy of tata philanthropy can be summed up in the words of mr j r d tata and he said the wealth gathered by jamsheji and his two sons in half a century of industrial pioneering form but a minute fraction of the amount by which they enrich the nation the whole of that wealth is held in the trust for the people and used exclusively for the benefit the cycle is thus complete what came from the people has gone back to the people many times over uh, i do not know just to <coughs> uh, just uh, just to elaborate on this point i do not know how many of you really know that tata as a group is held by a, a, a the holding company called tata sons and 66% of the tata sons shares are held by the trusts so virtually if you go to see all the uh, dividends which are earned by tata sons 66% of the dividends of the group today come back to the tata trust and through tata trust they go back to the people through various philanthropic activities this is the structure of the holding of tata trust so and this was envisaged 75 years ago by sadar ji tata or more than 100 years ago by jamshed ji tata where the the principles of trusteeship was never even taught in those days but jamshed ji had the four vision the vision to think of that and therefore he created this trust so that the wealth created across the companies across the this thing comes back to the trust and through the trust goes back to the com- to the community the tata trust have undertaken several projects on national scale which replete with instances of committing themselves to the cause causes that have a direct bearing on the lives of the totally. india's poor and needy this would include the thematic areas of education health management of natural resources livelihood social development initiatives art and culture uh, i agree with uh, professor stern that all is not uh, lost the i would definitely say that uh, yes uh, the volume itself is so much uh, to sustain this uh, growth which is at 9% and 10% today but uh, i would say that it is possible it is possible to sustain this if proper policies are followed if uh, the infrastructure is improved and maintained if the savings are uh, increased if the government spending is low and monitored properly and lastly ours is an agrarian com- uh, uh, country and therefore agriculture should be our main objective and therefore tata trust uh, 
at least I would say spends about 40% of their income, disposable income with them on management of natural resources and on agricultural activities. The Jamshedji Tata Trust, which is today the uh, agency which is having this collaboration, was established in 1974 to mark the centenary year of the first Tata Enterprise and bestows grants for innovation and overall, de overall development issues. I am sure that this contribution will go a long way in the above two prestigious institutions coming together in a mutually enriching collaboration to strengthen the teaching, training and research agendas of their health studies and social science programs. After hearing Professor Stern, uh, my views have been strengthened that this collaboration will definitely work for the better of the two countries, that are the two institutions per se, and more so for the Tata Institute of Social Sciences, which in turn will be the advocacy, uh, will, will lead the advocacy to, for the government of India, because the government of India many a times looks upon Tata Institute of Social Sciences for ideas, views, and uh, suggestions. May I now sum up by saying that I won't take much time of yours. Therefore, all of us in the corporate and the social sector to come together and put together this world where it belongs, a strong, peace-loving globe embroiled in a spirit of brotherhood, unconsciously disarming the militancy which has overpowered peace all around, and giving each one of them a reason to live and let live in peace and harmony. This surely must be the guiding vision for all of us involved in an attempt to structure a strong, happy, healthy human society in the coming years. While this program, while this uh, collaboration is being launched today, I wish the TISS and LSE all the success it deserves in achieving the goals of this worthwhile collaboration and would be extremely happy to be closely associated in its progress over the next few years. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for giving me the time to share my thoughts with you and with my warmest personal regards to everybody. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Uh, now, I'll take five questions. Uh, anybody up there? No, nobody up there is curious. Uh, I want to have the lady yeah, over there first. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Rekha Divaka from the Department of Government, LSE. I just want to ask you, you mentioned two things, democratic deficit and uh, improving the investment climate. Uh, how do you think a reformed civil service in India can act as an important agent for sustaining growth and promoting, promoting inclusion? Okay. I'm going to take five questions at once. The lady there. tells us that the BBC tells us um, a lot these days about uh, the consumption often being in luxury goods so my question is uh, with the panel does the panel think that the average middle class person or worker in India pays anything like as much 
percentage-wise in tax, uh, which could then be used for redistribution and all the things it needs, as, say, the average middle-class worker here. Okay. Uh, the gentleman there? No, 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 wait, 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 wait for the, wait for the thing. Yeah. Hi. Uh, sustainability is a very old idea in the Indian consciousness. It's a 3,000, at least 3,000-year-old idea. I can think of the Jains and even ancient Hindu wisdom. And yet there is no mention uh, in these talks by any of the panelists. I really feel, and this is a question, that if we want to reform India, that we need to, India needs to translate its own ancient consciousness and bring it into its educational system so that it develops its own sustainable way of growth. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, now, uh, lady here, yeah. Just one minute, just one minute. The, the mic is coming to Hi. Ivana Gazabara from Sustainability. Um, my question is about the relationship between China and India. I, I feel like there's a lot of talk out there about China and India in the context of threat and uh, what a threat China is to India and uh, the competition between the two. And I'm wondering what the panel thinks are the opportunities uh, in the relationship between China and India and how yeah. India can profit from that. Okay, I'm scanning up. There's nobody up there who wants to ask a question. Okay, uh, the gentleman there. The gentleman there at the back. Um, Mr. Hassan briefly mentioned that in order to increase productivity and growth, people need to be moved from farming, from farming areas to city areas, for instance. Um, from a fiscal perspective, uh, in what ways could the Indian government encourage people to move from rural to urban areas? Very good. Okay, I'm going to take one more question. The lady at the back, sorry. Uh. Um, again, a question to the panel as a whole. If, uh, wouldn't you think that the key issue for sustaining inclusive growth in India would be the lack of generation of low-skilled jobs in India given the changing composition of the sectors? No. Okay. Uh, now, who's going to go first? Uh, Nick, you want to go first? Some, some very big questions there that I can only give the most superficial of responses. I do think that a reformed civil service has a big role to play in improving the investment climate. Um, one aspect of the investment climate in UP relative to Maharashtra is that small firms in UP are visited by local authorities twice as often as, uh, as small firms in Maharashtra, and uh, I wonder what they're there for. The... Um, on uh, taxation and uh, uh, redistribution and growth, I do think that it's a big story uh, um, in sustaining growth in, in India. Um, the, um, when I was in Bangalore in 1981-82, I was working on the value-added tax, and you know, there are long lags in India, but now the uh, value-added tax is moving, together, moving forward much more strongly. I think that's a good chance and a good opportunity to start raising um, tax revenue. But I also think the personal income tax has to play uh, quite a strong role. And uh, the investments in infrastructure I was talking about, the investments in education and, and health, which others have rightly focused on, I think that really does need government revenue. You can get away with a, a tax deficit uh, for a while, particularly if your uh, economy is growing strongly in money terms as India has been, you know, with a bit of growth and a bit of inflation, and that keeps up the money value of income, so the debt-to-GDP ratio is brought down by that. If, in addition, you control interest rates, as in many, as there are on many forms of saving, 
then what appears like a deficit is financed by, as it were, rather, uh, I think it's called stealth taxation in this country on um, interest rates. So there's ways in which you can do it, but I don't think they're transparent, they don't promote uh, good governance, and I think over time the tax percentage uh, will rise and uh, should rise. I do think that sustainability, uh, and I'll link this to India and China, this question, because we're short of time. Both, you've got a, a few hundred million people in China and a few hundred mi million people in India, probably well over a billion people in total, who depend on the um, rivers which originate in the Himalayas. Uh, as that uh, ice cap and... Uh, uh, and the glaciers, snow cap and the glaciers start to retreat, what we're going to see is no change probably in overall rainfall, but we're going to see um, torrents in the uh, rainy season and dry rivers in the, uh, in the dry season. That's a tremendous threat to, uh, to uh, livelihoods in, uh, both in China and in India, both in, and in rural areas and in urban areas, not just an agricultural question. Those of us who have been working in agriculture uh, well, for 30-odd years now in, uh, in UP have seen the fall in the water tables. This isn't water extraction, it's water mining. And uh, that, again, is a real challenge to uh, sustainability. And the whole management of water in both countries is going to become much more difficult, and sustainability does require a strong focus on that. I didn't say much in my uh, introduction because I thought you'll get bored if I talked about uh, climate change. Now, the... Um, Lasting a generation of low-skilled jobs. I've never quite liked the language of generation of jobs. I mean, I, I think the question is to uh, look at the sources of demand, look at how efficient the uh, supply is, and then the jobs come out at the, uh, at the other end. The service sector, of course, is quite a strong generator of jobs. And just to take the village Palanpur, where I've been working for a long time, some of the poorest members, the Jatab members of uh, the village, have been increasing their income through getting involved in house building. And as incomes go up in most countries, certainly the UK and uh, India too, people spend more money on housing in some shape or form. So some of this switch, as it were, from the agriculture into the service sector has been of that kind. And uh, so I think if uh, we concentrate on the generation of incomes, if we concentrate on equipping people through education, through breaking down of gender barriers and so on, uh, we in the, in the grand sense of uh, India and India's friends... Um, then I think the, uh, the generation of employment comes out at the other end. Thank you. Mr. Hassan, do you want to say anything? Yeah, I'd just like to say a couple of things about the question that was raised about China and India um, being uh, competing economies. Uh, I think that is true to a certain extent, but uh, what I find is that uh, the, the Chinese economy, has think, I think, has sort of... Um, grown the Indian economy, and I can say with some authority on the steel industry, I think the steel industry in India was literally languishing. I mean, we had quite a lot of uh, steel plants which today are now not only flourishing in India, but they're also sort of going on internationally and buying steel companies. And I think that has been because of the demand that China had generated. And I think the steel industry revival in India, and to a great extent, steel industry revival worldwide has been because of China. There has also been, I think, a lot of complement. Uh, I mean, they are in sort of not competing because India has never really been big in manufacturing, whereas China in manufacturing has been quite superb. 
and the kind of cost per unit that they manufacture, I think India has never been able to sort of compete. We are more into the knowledge industry and trouble will come when China learns enough English, trouble will come when China gets <laughs> to learn, uh, to do the, the knowledge industry in the software and I think when that happens, that's when the real competition is going to come about. Stuart? Yeah, very quickly, uh, I'd endorse those uh, comments. In terms of the demographic, uh, the, the democratic deficit, I, I do think that I would want to underline the, the, the extraordinary vibrancy of what is going on in India in many respects, and in, in a way the cross-fertilization by the civil service of civil society, uh, for example through the right to information movement, uh, the MKSS in Rajasthan. We heard today from two colleagues from TIS, Chandan Sengupta and Jasmine Damley, about the way in which particularly urban constituents, mainly middle class people, are able to use the Freedom of Information Act to enforce certain rights against the state. And this is a slow-burning thing, I suppose. Uh, wasn't it Zhao Lai who said when he was asked about uh, the French Revolution it was too soon to judge yet the effects? And I think when it comes to things like uh, reservation for women, for example, it's probably too soon to say yet what the effects will be. But there is some cross-sectional evidence already emerging to suggest that <coughs> women in power in panchayats, for example, might choose different spending priorities than would men, but they might even be less corrupt in power than men. So the democratic deficit, I think, is a, is a difficult one. On taxation, I'm going to say very little since I'm not an economist. I would have thought that we would expect the capacity of the state to tax would actually increase as the economy becomes more robust. There would be a switch from various forms of taxation, for example, sales taxes in the countryside to more direct forms of taxation. It's true that many people in the countryside don't pay a great deal of direct tax, but it would cost an awful lot, I think, to organize a taxation system to do that. Uh, anecdotally, and it reminds me of sort of Said and Orientalism, there was a story in the Times of the UK, I think just before Christmas, some of my students might remind me, um, talking about how the city authorities in Patna have been deploying eunuchs to chase people who have been evading taxes. I mean, this was a story that was picked up also by the BBC. And I think the real story is not so much the taxation rates, where I would have to defer to Nick and others, but the, the scale of the tax evasion strikes me as a huge problem in India. Uh, on China and India and uh, sustainability, it seems to me perhaps the most important work that's been done here that I know of is by Partha Dasgupta and colleagues, particularly through the World Bank. Now, if we think about growth, not just in terms of conventional income measures, but human capital, social capital, but add in natural capital depletion too, allowing for the fact that it's very difficult to do these calculations, the Scripter has estimated that the real rate of growth, including natural resource depletion in India and China through the 1990s, was about 1% per annum. In Pakistan, it was, neg it was, it was less than zero. It was going backwards. So I think there's, there's a huge amount of work to be done here, and I'm sure on a, in a different <coughs> circumstance, Nick would speak to that. Lastly, on rural to urban, I see where the question is going, but I think it's partly also mistaken. Uh, as Nick said, there's a huge divorce between putting together rurally-based livelihoods and agriculture. And I think what we're seeing very much in India today, uh, as we've always seen perhaps, very peripatetic lifestyles, uh, what we might call raw-urban lifestyles, one of my most brilliant PhD students, Craig Jeffrey, working very close to Palampur, in fact, in Western UP, now at the University of Seattle in Washington, actually followed four large lineages of Jap farmers who'd done very well from the Green Revolution and looked at how they were diversifying into things like 
in one case buying a police constableship in merit or positioning themselves in the public services legitimately or otherwise and into politics and they were actually diversifying their assets across both rural and urban space so I think we're seeing some quite complicated livelihood strategies emerging there I'll stop Right, thank you I'll take this um, deficit in democracy uh, part of it Um, if you look at India at this particular point in time I think we have become extremely efficient in um, conducting free and fair elections you have seen the recently concluded election in Uttar Pradesh but if we were to look at what the democracy is doing to people and that's where you have problem in the sense that what is the space available to people, elected representatives and people to participate in decision making, um, whether it is at the grassroots level or the broader public policy decision making, I think that space is increasingly constrained. Um, I think eroded uh, over, a, over a period of time. Um, and how much the, the, the knowledge that is emerging from the grounds is being fed to that decision making process is also in doubt. There is a second set of a very serious uh, problem in the sense that how much um, the state is willing to um, deal with dissent and how it deals with the dissent. I think if you look at um, uh, look at the situation in the, in the country, I think a form of economic fundamentalism, you know, um, that there is there is particular ways to do development, and if 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 anyone questions that that ways of doing development. I think that's where the problem starts. I think many of um, the laws uh, that we have put in place um, is taking away people's liberties. And, um, and, and I think in states like much of the um, uh, serious problems you would encounter in um, resource-rich states like Orissa, Bihar, Jharkhand, and these are the states whereby the, 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 the breaking up of the civil society movements and groups is, is far more uh, widespread. I think this is a, this is a very, uh, very serious situation that is emerging. I think the economic fundamentalism at one level and the religious fundamentalism at the other level is, is, is creating context whereby dissent is uh, far more difficult. When it comes to the China-India um, uh, situation, I think, um, again, it relates to um, the fossil fuel-led growth paradigm, um, where if these two countries were to to move the path they they are moving, I think much of what um, uh, Professor Stern has been trying to tell us is that the consequences to a a large uh, proportion of our population would be far more serious. Are we learning from any of the ill effects of um, the, 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 the nature of growth that is happening? No. I think um, the India, Indian government continuously states that um, the, the government in, um, in West Bengal is doing extremely well by following the model that is shown by the, um, the Chinese. And, 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 and there, is, there is the debate that the Marxists in um, New Delhi do not follow what the Marxists in, um, in West Bengal uh, try to do per se as such. I think um, uh, that, is, that is that copying of development um, 
as is growth is, is, is a serious problem, actually. There is, there is uh, neither in India nor in China, there is any understanding of uh, plurality in, in the, the ways of development and growth. I think this is, this is a serious issue, and it has severe implications, fundamentally because together uh, we house, what, one-third of humanity, and, um, and it's only growing. Um, the, uh, the, the another point I will make um, that's about the rural urban oh, migration. It's cool. Um, there is a hypothesis. I think much research needed to be done. The, it's like this. The displacement of people from rural areas by a number of processes, um, you know, uh, quite a lot of lands are needed um, for, for, the, for the kind of growth that is taking place. But there is no resettlement rehabilitation of that population is taking place in rural areas, fundamentally because of the nature of growth that is happening in uh, agriculture, but also the nature of move that is happening in agriculture per se. You know, it's, it's, it's more towards corporate agriculture. That is the progress which we are, we are tending to uh, move on. In the meantime, if you look at the urban um, um, you know, rate of employment, you would also see that there is, there is also displacement of people from um, employment and, um, and, and living in urban areas or such. So what you have is that there is a push out of rural areas, increasing push out of rural areas because rehabilitation and resettlement of those populations is not um, uh, a clearly indicated uh, policy. And that's where you, you get nandigrams and, and a number of uh, instances that is happening in the sense that people are resisting displacement, but people are being displaced, but they will not be resettled or rehabilitated. But they are moving out of, want to move out of rural areas, but they cannot come to urban areas per se, where there are not um, the kind of employment that is happening in them. I think this is the kind of conflict that you would see increasingly in India that how, um, how this is going to be managed in the years to come um, of, of, of rural push and urban push, and, 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 that, and, and that's where um, much more uh, research and understanding would be needed. Thank you very much. Well, I have a um, couple of tasks to perform before I conclude this session. First of all, I want to thank the four speakers who have, uh, like all good speakers, left you with more questions than answers. <laughs> That's mark of a good, a good panel discussion. Secondly, I want to thank Mr. Bhatliwala for, uh, not only for his presentation, the generosity of the Jamtichi Trata Trust uh, to the extent of 1.8 million pounds, not all of it going to me. Uh, uh, but I also want, I want to request him to take our thanks for the generosity of Tata Trust, not only over the many years, but the continuing association LLC and Tata Trust have had. So I, I hope that he, he can do that, that for us. And um, uh, lastly, I have to announce that there is a workshop tomorrow in the box. Uh, in case people are interested. Uh, the box is something which has happened since I left LSE, so you all know where the box is. Uh, and lastly, I thank you all very much for coming to attend it. And as always, LSE's motto is Rerim Kognoskari Kauza, find the cause of things. And we shall go on finding cause of things because one nice thing about social science is we are never done with the task. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed my trip to uh, the time I was